Good morning. Hey, as we get started today, I want to give you two uh, quick updates as well as some of the other announcements that you heard. Um, this week and next week, so today and next Sunday, we're going to finish John chapter 5. And then two weeks from today, we're going to take a pause. Um, we're going to pause for the summer uh, in the Gospel of John, and we're going to spend the summer studying through the Psalms. Um, and we have some things planned for that. So two weeks from this morning, we're going to have a professor from that intern school, Johnson University, Johnson Bible College, that's going to, um, he's going to come. He's Old Testament professor, Dr. Jody Owens, and he's going to be preaching that morning. That evening, he's also going to come and offer a seminar overview of the book of Psalms to help us prepare to spend the summer diving in uh, to that book. And so you'll be able, you'll be resourced with different things. We'll send some uh, options out. You'll hear from multiple people in the summer teaching and preaching on the book of Psalms. Then at the end of the summer in August, we'll pick back up in John and we will finish the gospel of John uh, by the end of the year. And so uh, we wanted to have just a breather and we thought it'd be a neat opportunity, spend some time in the Old Testament, have a professor come. And so be looking forward to that. That starts in two weeks. Secondly, um, I'm sure that you noticed through communication this week and when you drove onto our campus and only saw one tiny little lot that there's some construction happening here. And while it was expected, I don't know that it was all expected, which is fine, this past week. And so we scrambled quite a bit. And I wanted to just do two things. One, I wanted to, to thank you. Uh, this past week in multiple meetings, it was brought up how incredible our church responded last Sunday to sending out communication, asking you to come early, park at Boone Meadow Elementary, be bussed over for church, bussed back, and head home. That's incredible. So much so that last week there was actually still available parking, all three services over here, because so many of you went and did that. That's really, really cool that you did that, because that's really fun for like one or two weeks. But if you paid attention out here, it's going to be about six to seven weeks of doing that. And so I want to encourage you, please keep it up. We're so grateful for a church that can pivot. I think it was providential that God led our elders to call this initiative, the entire project, the Together Initiative. And little did we know how much we were going to have to do together, how quickly, and yet you've responded incredibly. Thank you. In addition to that, we've got many of you that are volunteering in a lot of different capacities, Driving vehicles, showing up early to set up, staying late to tear down, holding doors, greeting people, meeting needs. Man, it's incredible. Uh, I'm just really grateful to get to be a part of this church culture of serving. Right? And just as a church family, I wanted to say thank you because you did pivot and you have put other people's interests above your own. And we are doing all of this to make room for more people to hear the good news of Jesus. And for that, we could not be more grateful. So thank you. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we come and uh, we thank you. I am so grateful for this church. My life is better because of what you've done through the people in this congregation. This is an outpost of heaven. Thank you, God. Thank you for a congregation that desires to put the interests of other people above their own. And Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning... I pray that we would humble ourselves under its authority, uh, that we would be attentive to what it calls us to, and that we would leave here different because of it. And we'll trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife, Sarah, and I have four children, uh, age ranging from 15 all the way down to six. 
And if you've been here uh, for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite things in life is being a dad. I really enjoy this season that we're in. It's not all awesome. It's like, hey, we're going like 100 miles an hour in 75 different directions. This is so great. And oh, we pay to get into this game that we paid for them to be on this team. That's so good. I love that. Thanks. You want more money? Where else can we just give you money, right? But I do enjoy it thoroughly. It's incredible. One of the things I love the most is seeing how they can all be learning something similar, but because of their age and maturity, there's different perspectives on it, right? Let me give you an example. All four of my kids have a desire for righteousness. Now, before you jump to like, oh, you raised holy kids, let me explain righteousness this way. Rightness. They want things that are wrong to be made right. They have a desire for justice. What's fascinating about this desire for justice in my kids, though, is that it, it appears different in each of them, like my six-year-old. His desire for justice usually manifests itself this way. That's not fair, right? That phrase is said a lot in our home. Uh, what's not fair, buddy? Anything he doesn't like isn't fair. And it's a massive injustice to this world that needs to be handled with righteous judgment, right? Anything he doesn't like, anything that makes him uncomfortable, anything that he doesn't agree with, that's not fair, right? He loves baseball right now. So we go out and we can play baseball, but if he gets the slightest clue that he might not be winning that game, you better believe, that's not fair. I don't want to play. And it's like, man, he wants justice. Fast forward to my 15-year-old, and he sees it a little bit different than that. He's starting to study history more extensively in school, and he's paying attention to the world around him more carefully. And he's asking questions about why is it that people that seem to do evil don't seem to be punished for it. They seem to get away with it. We listen to a podcast. I drive him to school three, sometimes four, five times a week. And on our drive, we listen to a podcast that looks at the news from a biblical worldview. And in this podcast, we'll listen to things, and he'll ask really good questions like, why did they make that decision? Like, why, why is that happening? And, and if that happens, then that happens. Are they thinking about this? And in a lot of ways, what he's doing on these car rides and in these conversations, he's asking the same thing. He's saying the same thing his little six-year-old brother is. He's saying, this isn't fair. Like, something should be done about this. This isn't right. Something needs to come and make this right. Fast forward 24 years from him and you have my wife and I. And when we sit and we talk about the political state of our country, when we look at popular culture, when we discuss the pains that we've endured in our life or the pains that are happening right now in our life, there's a deep sense of the very same feeling that our 6-year-old, our 15-year-old, our 11- and 13-year-old as well, and ourselves, we struggle with. Is this just doesn't seem right. This isn't fair. This is... An injustice. You felt that before too? Maybe now you feel it? That some things that are happening aren't right. Some people that should be brought to justice aren't brought to justice. Some evil that continues to happen doesn't seem to be made right. And we feel it, right? Like you feel it from the moment you're a little kid and it doesn't seem to go away. This desire to make all of the wrong right. Which leads us to this tension. The world that we live in, you can easily notice justice is a buzzword. People want justice for a variety of different things. And they want a judge to come in and declare what is right. Here's where the problem lies, though. 
In order for a judge, someone who could come in and judge the injustices in our personal lives and around the world, he would have to have a standard of righteousness that could go over the top of everything. And by everything, that includes you and me. And so it doesn't take long to determine when you look at the culture that everybody wants justice, but not everybody wants that judge. Because it's easy for me to see the evil and the bad that's existing in the big bad evil players in our world, the political leaders, the world leaders that are oppressing and hurting people, the people that do injustices that make it onto the news. It's easy for me to see that and say justice needs to be served. It's a little harder when that standard of righteousness that is required to bring that to justice would also need to be applied to my life. You see, in order for a judge to come in and be a righteous judge, there must be a standard of righteousness that's over the top of everything. All of it. That includes what you've done, and that includes what I've done. And that gets a little bit uncomfortable. Gets a little bit uncomfortable when it's like, it's not just justice for all the things out there. It must also be justice for me in here. And this is where the biblical view of things Biblical theology differs from what the rest of the world teaches because there is a standard. There is a time. The rest of the world would teach that history will continue to go. And what happens is people start to think, I'm going to take justice into my own hands, but it's not just justice into my own hands. I'm going to create differing standards of justice and righteousness that will allow me not to have to deal with this and will only deal with this. And the Bible teaches that history will not just go on forever. Time will not just continue to repeat itself over and over again as we seek justice. The Bible teaches there is coming a time when history will cease. Time will stop and God will enter the picture. And when he enters the picture, he's going to bring a standard of righteousness that will allow him to be a just judge and make all things wrong right. That day will come. And if you look at the meta narrative, and let me explain what I mean by that, the big story from Genesis to Revelation, all that God has done, is doing, and will do, the meta-narrative of all of human history. God has given us a glimpse of a time when he will come and permanently bring justice, and he's given us this glimpse throughout history of times where he stepped into time and space and brought about justice for injustices, pointing forward to the day when he would permanently do it. Look at a couple examples in your Bible. In the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, you've got Adam and Eve, okay? They're created by God. They're put into this paradise known as the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, there are thousands of trees. Everything is perfect. It's beautiful. It's this incredible place. All of their needs are met. All of their desires are satisfied. They have a perfect relationship with God. There is no sin. There is no injustice that's taken place. And there's one tree. And God says, you're not to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours, but you're not to eat of that tree. And maybe when you read that, you might ask yourself the question, well, God, why would you put something bad in the middle of all that is good, tempting them to do evil? But there's a problem with that viewpoint. The problem is the Bible. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that everything he created was good. That includes that tree. That includes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is a good thing. It was not placed there to tempt them to do evil. It was placed there as a source of wisdom from God to remind them that they were not created to have access to everything. They were not to have it all, every chance that they got. 
And so they're tempted by the evil one, by the enemy to come and to take of that fruit. And they stop listening to God. And what you see is a real injustice here. They stop listening to their heavenly father. And instead, they begin to redefine good and evil on their own terms. They begin to create their own standards. Right? And it sets the course of human history down a path that would introduce injustice over and over again. And God steps in and has to create a standard of righteousness that he places over the top of them to judge what they've done. I want you to notice, though, that when God comes, he shows up on the scene in Genesis 3, and he does not grade on a curve. He does not come in and say, well, I know I said this, but it's been a tough day. So, like, I'm going to give you one, like, we don't really need to do it that way. In other words, God doesn't rule the way many of us parent, okay? I told you one more time. Well, like, I meant, like, one more time. Like, but I didn't say two and a half on my way to three, right? And, and I said no technology. And you're like, oh, you're a bad parent. Except you do it too. So I don't want to hear it, right? <laughs> yeah. And God doesn't do that. What he says here, he's not going to grade on a curve. There's no exceptions. He is just and he's holy. But he does so with compassion. And that's a theme you need to hold on to for the rest of the sermon today. He does so with a demeanor of compassion. He clothes them. He provides for them. He gives them a way to continue to connect with him after their punishment is still given to them. You're gone. Get out of the garden. Paradise is now lost because of what you did. So he's just and he's righteous, but he's compassionate. Look at the story of Exodus in your Bible, in in the book of Exodus. This is the story of God's people being enslaved under the rule of a vicious world dictator, ruling the the known world and the the most powerful empire at the time, Egypt, and he's known as Pharaoh. Now, you may have watched some kids' movies and listened to some different things, and when you look at history, Pharaoh was so much more evil than we even depict. Oftentimes would murder children, and the Bible tells us he killed all of the boys, consistently rode the backs of the Uh, God's people, built an entire empire on their backs, would take things and do things based on his own desires, in doing so, redefined what was good and evil. He led an empire that said, what God has said is good, I don't like, so now I'm saying that's bad, but what I like, God doesn't like, and I'm going to say that that's actually good now. We're going to change how things are defined here to get the most out of it that we can get. And into this story, God comes. And he shows up and he brings judgment, a righteousness that he imposes upon the injustice of what Pharaoh has been doing that will judge that injustice and bring about a justice that is righteous. I know that's a lot to take in, but it's a justice that's not compromised. It's not graded on a curve. It is perfect because it's God's standard that's imposed upon that injustice. But I want you to notice again, he's compassionate. He gives Pharaoh 10 different opportunities to repent. 10 different times he sends a plague that's trying to get the attention of Pharaoh. I've had many people say, well, what about the hardening of his heart? It says that God hardened his heart. And there's many different ways to explore that. But eventually, as God saw that Pharaoh's heart was not going to soften up, he hardened it so that his purposes would be fulfilled. And so 10 times he gives him a chance to repent, showing his compassion but not grading on a curve, not budging from his 
justice and his righteous judgment. He doesn't budge from it at all. And eventually, Pharaoh chooses not to do so, and his judgment is he's killed there as the waters crash over the top of him. And God's justice is served. The evil there is stopped. Now, again, you, you, you see this and you see what they endured and God steps in and you're like, okay, why are we talking about all of this and, and God's compassion, but his righteous justice and judgment? It's this. When you look at, the, again, that meta narrative, this is unbelievably important for us to understand. And I, I want to be really transparent with you. There is a lot of pressure when you're a preacher in our culture today to, to entertain. I've heard multiple times people, hey, you know, there's too much Bible. We need to just kind of get to that, that practical stuff. The practical stuff is the overflow of good Bible teaching, and I'll never apologize for that. I want you to know this, though. The deeper you dive into your Old Testament, the richer your New Testament will become. The more you understand what God has done through life and through history, the better you're going to understand the life of Jesus. Understanding that God has given us a glimpse of his judgment that will finally be found gives you more depth in understanding what Jesus says right here in John chapter 5. Right? So in John chapter 5, what he says about himself makes more sense when you understand what God has done through history. Okay? If you remember, John chapter 5, you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you remember this, uh, last week, um, our 12-year-old youth minister, Matt, um, <laughs> sorry, he took three digs last week, okay? Like three of them. So I had to do something, okay? And so for a 12-year-old, Matt did a really good job preaching last week about Jesus healing the lame man by the pool, okay? And what happens is the Pharisees get upset. They get angry because Jesus is doing something that in their minds, this is pivotal to understanding the context, in their minds was an injustice. But here's the thing. These are the very people that should have known to look for the one that God had promised over and over again. See, think about this with Exodus. From the moment that God delivered them, they instituted this practice of Passover. Okay? This is every year they would remember Every year they got together, they would remember what God had done. As a matter of fact, once God delivers the Israelites in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 13, Moses gets up in front of the people and he says these words. He says, remember this day when God delivered us with his mighty hand. It was his justice that delivered us. And so every year, Jewish people would sit around the table and here's what they would remember at this Passover Two things. It was remembering and a warning. The remembering around the table of the Jewish family was this. Hey, do you remember in our history when the evil in our culture got so strong and so dark that it made almost impossible to bear? It was almost impossible for us to endure. But do you remember that in that moment, that darkest moment, God came and he brought justice and he delivered us. And they would remember the justice of God. But at the same time, it wasn't just remembering. It was pointing them to having a a hopeful anticipation of the day when the permanent Passover would come, when God would come permanently and deliver them from all injustice and evil. And so at the same time, they remember all that God had done. And with hopeful anticipation, they longed for the day when he would send his Messiah to come and deliver them permanently. That's important to understand when you look at the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had the law of God. And they had somewhere along the line began to think that judgment and justice was placed in their hands, not God's. And so they enforced this law. 
And in doing so, over time, had lost that hopeful anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. So much so that when he showed up, they missed it. And so Jesus is on the scene, and they're getting frustrated with him because he's doing things that doesn't line up with their view of justice, their view of judgment. And now Jesus is going to speak into this that he's the judge, and he carries with it the justice. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 16 and read down to verse 30. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, healing the man that was lame by the pool, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is God's word. You can be seated. So this interaction with the Pharisees gets pretty intense. Their view of justice and judgment based purely on the law. Jesus identifying himself as the Messiah right there in the beginning, verses 16 to 18. He flat out says, hey, God works on the Sabbath and I'm God, so I work on the Sabbath. And that just enraged him. It's like they were burning up with anger towards him. And he said, hey, I got some like gasoline. You want some? And he pours it on the fire and they get really upset to the point where they want to kill him. Don't let that be lost on you. Imagine the amount of anger you have to have to truly desire murdering somebody. They want him dead. And this is a pivotal moment in John's gospel because the demeanor and attitude towards Jesus begins to get a lot more hostile. In chapter 6, we looked at this a while back. In chapter 6, many of his disciples will leave him because he starts to identify more and more about who he is and what it means to follow him. And these religious leaders look at him as someone who's not pursuing justice and righteousness the way they think that he should. And so he continues and he expands on it by identifying the source of his ability to bring justice the way he's bringing it. He says, I get every bit of my power from the Father. God has entrusted to me the authority and the power to bring judgment. 
the authority and the power to bring about a righteous standard by which he will judge all living people. When they die, they will come out of their graves and he will bring about judgment. Now this brings up some questions because in here it says they will not be judged. They will have eternal life. But then he says, but all will be judged. Some will have life and others will be condemned. What is Jesus talking about? In this passage, Jesus talks about judgment saying everybody will experience it. Here's what he means. Everybody will experience it. (laughs) Everyone. One of my kids recently said, so I'm a Christian though, so like I won't experience judgment. And I was like, well, that's not true. You will be judged. You absolutely will experience judgment as a Christian on judgment day. You will be judged. Which is like, wait, what is that supposed to mean? Well, let's look at a couple examples. You know, the Bible teaches that even as a believer, you will give an account for every word that comes out of your mouth. Let that help you sleep tonight. Every word, every word that you've ever spoken, you will give an account for that. Every gossip, every lie, every joke that was inappropriate, every mean thing that you spoke with the intention of hurting somebody else to make yourself feel better in that moment, every word, you'll give an account for it. The Bible also says, which I wish more preachers would take this a a lot more seriously, in James chapter 3, verse 1, perhaps the scariest verse in the Bible Let not many of you become preachers or teachers, my brothers, because you will be held to a more strict judgment. See, we will be judged. Here's the difference. Jesus presents two cases. On that day when he judges, you're going to have those who have placed their faith in him. The text here in chapter 5 says those whose honor, they've honored him with their life, those who believe in him, those who have eternal life, And those who don't. And here's what that means. That standard of righteousness that will come to bring about a justice that is over all things, making everything bad turn good, is applied to us. And so when Jesus comes, he says, every word you've spoken, every action that you've committed, every sin that is a part of your life is now going to be judged. And essentially what it's saying is this. What righteousness are you going to pay for all that wrong with? And Jesus says, for those who honored the Son, who believe in the Son... Their righteousness will be his. So the Bible says when you're baptized into Christ, you are buried with him in baptism, raised up to new life. That new life, your sins are forgiven. The spirit lives inside of you in that his righteousness is now applied to you. So when you are judged, when the day comes when you're going to be judged for everything you've ever done, when God looks to apply that standard, he'll see the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus says you'll be given eternal life. Then there's those who don't. He says they will be raised up to condemnation. In that day, the same thing will be applied to them. The same standard of righteous applied across the board. The same justice will be served across the board. And that righteousness applied to them. And they will say, based on my own righteousness, I deserve to be here. I heard one politician say, when I get to heaven, I'm marching right in. And I'm not asking for permission because I've done a lot of good in this world. Good luck. Because what did Jesus say about that? Many of you on that day of judgment will say to me, Lord, Lord, look what I did. Did all these good things. Did all these righteous things. And he'll say, depart from me. Because I didn't know you. Because you didn't allow my righteousness to become your righteousness. And so Jesus lays out this case. This is what judgment looks like. And then in verse 28, notice he says, don't be amazed by this. 
This standard of righteousness will be applied to all people. This shouldn't throw you off. You should be longing for it. You should look for this. You should be expecting it. And to the Pharisees, they really should have been expecting this. That God has throughout history given us this glimpse that says, I'm coming. And when I come, there's going to be a day when history stops. And everyone experiences judgment. And in that day, there's be those who trust in the Messiah and those who don't. And because for them, justice had become about everything they do, they missed the Messiah. Now, why do we talk about this? Why? Because truth is truth. What Jesus is communicating to them is this. Look, you can accept this or deny it. It doesn't change that it's real. You can pretend as though you won't be judged. You can ignore the fact that you will be judged. You can act like you don't care. Uh, Like popular culture in our world today, you can mock it and make fun of it and pretend like it's not a big deal. It won't stop it from being true. The truth is the truth whether or not you respond adequately to it. Or, like D.A. Uh, Carson once said, uh, the truth is like you can deny it all you want. It's like you can jump off the roof in complete and total defiance of gravity, but you don't get to decide whether or not you hit the ground. Gravity's gravity, even when you jump off and say, no, no, not for me, yes, for you. And what Jesus is saying here is truth is truth. Now, why, why are we talking about this? Because there's a couple things I really want you to learn about this idea of judgment and justice and seeking of justice. The first is this. I think a lot of Christians can talk a lot about it because they know a lot about it. But truth isn't just something that you know. It's something that you feel. And there's a lot of Christians that I've encountered that don't like the way that justice and judgment make them feel, so they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to explore it, and they definitely don't want to hear sermons on it. They would just rather not talk about it. Sure, we believe, but I just don't want to hear it. And are you saying, wait, you're saying that all people are going to be judged like everybody? I get it. Like I have this deep desire to undo all the evil in the world. And I want this certain person who's done so much evil things to come to justice. I feel that. But like everyone, like my grandma, my coworker, my neighbor, my best friend, the kid I grew up with. Look, I know that they don't follow you, Jesus. And I know that like the text says here in John 5, they don't honor you with their life. But they're good people. Like, they do good things. They even pay their taxes. Like, they're great people. Why would they be judged? Please hear me when I say this. Please. The Bible is clear. Romans chapter 3. All have sinned. All. And fallen short of the glory of God, the standard of righteousness. All. Everyone. And here's the thing. It's easy to see that when they fall short in a really angry, frustrating way that really burns you up. It's a lot harder to see it when they do it with a smile on their face in subtle ways, maybe even bringing you a plate full of homemade cookies, and they're just the sweetest, nicest person. They can do it in the sweetest, nicest way, and guess what? They are still in complete rebellion to God. That's what sin is. Look, sin, they have sinned, and sin is not simply breaking God's rules, though it is that. It is also building your life on anything except for God. You build your life around anything other than him, and you are in complete rebellion to him, regardless of how nice and sweet and kind and gentle you are. In complete and total rebellion. And in need of a standard of righteousness that's more powerful than their own. So that's the first thing, like understanding, like we might not want to talk about it, but it's a reality that needs to be talked about. The second thing is this. It's a question that I've wrestled with as I studied this. All week long, I've wrestled with this question. And and I hope you will too. Do I actually live my life? Because I look at these Pharisees and I'm like, man, I don't want to be like that, but maybe I am. Do you live your life 
with a hopeful anticipation, truly believing that Jesus will return to make all things just. The Pharisees lost sight of that. And Jesus gives them this vivid reminder that you should have been looking for the day. It shouldn't surprise you when it arrives. Don't let this amaze you, verse 28. When that day shows up, we shouldn't be like, whoa, judgment day. It should be like, no, I've been waiting for you to get here. The book of Revelation chapter 6 has the voice of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, do we have to wait until you bring about justice? We are waiting with anticipation for the day that you come to make all of this pain go away. All of these tears go away. All of this injustice and evil go away. We are waiting in anticipation for it. Because when you really live like that, and you actually believe it, you don't just give it lip service. When you believe he's coming back, there's not a lot of room for outrage. You don't, you don't act out by losing your temper on the culture. You're waiting because you know it's true. He's coming. I don't need to like prove it. It's, it's happening. It's like jumping off the roof, hoping gravity doesn't kick in for you. It, it, it's just going to happen. And if I really believe it's going to happen, my demeanor should not be that. Look, outrage is okay to feel. It's just a bad strategy to live your life. So let me ask you another question that I've wrestled with is this. Do you think, honestly, do you think that Jesus is being patient in returning for that final judgment so that you have more opportunity to rage out against the culture? Same effect in all three services. <laughs> That's a tough one, right? So that you can keep getting mad at the education system or popular culture or companies that make really poor decisions in their branding and marketing. Jesus is waiting so we can get more and more angry and frustrated and mad. No, that's not why. So the question is, why is Jesus waiting? Why hasn't that day come yet? The world seems pretty dark, right? It seems pretty uh, despairing. It's like, what is going on? It seems like the darkness can't get any darker. Why is the world like this? He should have come back by now. Why is he waiting? Well, the reason he's waiting is not so we can get more and more angry. The Bible tells us clearly why he's waiting. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is not slow in fulfilling his promise the way that you think of slowness. He says, no, he is patient in waiting to return so that everyone has a chance to repent. Is that how you live? Do you engage the culture around you in hopes that the people you're engaging will repent and turn to Jesus? Or do you get really excited to prove them wrong and bash them in with the truth? I'm not saying don't feel things. I'm not saying don't call things out. That's not what I'm saying. I get frustrated living in a world that takes the truth of God and twists it and turns it to try to redefine the difference between good and evil. I'll be very vulnerable with you. I felt some frustration when Target comes out and announces the week before last that they're going to have an entire transgender line of clothing for children. That's not the way truth is displayed in God's word. I have an opportunity there, right? I see, a, I see a, a, a company that is a vehicle company that wants to take on a, an agenda that is redefining, trying to redefine what biblical marriage is by promoting a rainbow-colored vehicle. And when you hear that, it's okay to feel frustrated. But the response that we have should be indicative of what we really believe. Do I rage out against that and go frustrated? no. You can take ground. Look, how did God bring about his judgment and his pursuit of justice? In the garden, in Egypt, on the cross. With compassion. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. 
His desire is to be patient in a world that's gone dark in hopes that more and more people would turn to repentance. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you engage the culture in such a way that you're hopeful that more and more people would come to know the life-saving, eternal life-giving faith of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, this is a heavy one because it's a hard to talk about judgment and justice. It's not an easy thing for us to talk through because we're faced with our own injustice, our own sin. But God, it's also hard because we live in a dark world. It's just got so much evil that surrounds us. And it's so easy to be angry and frustrated as though we need to prove the truth to be true. But we don't. It's true. And so, God, would you help us display the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, as we engage a dark culture with the light of Jesus? Would you help us to remember in our own story that it was your kindness that led us to repentance? May we display that same kindness in hopes that others will do the same. And we'll trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.